You're listening to the Lean Six Sigma for Good podcast. We help you learn how Lean and Six Sigma concepts can be applied to nonprofits, NGOs, and not-for-profit organizations. Visit us at LeanSixSigmaForGood.com. In this podcast, I interviewed Courtney Hudson. She's the distribution warehouse manager with Rise Against Hunger. They were the first winners of the Excellence in Sustainable Development Award in 2019. This award is geared for nonprofits, not-for-profit organizations, and NGOs that are utilizing process improvement, lean, Six Sigma, project management tools to further their progress towards sustainable development goals, specifically the 17 goals from the UN. We also have a video of the slides and another video embedded that talks about the organization itself that you'll hear in this podcast, so feel free to check out the video as well. That's available in the show notes. So if you know an organization that might be eligible for our award, we're going to give that out every year. Please feel free to check out the website link in the show notes and share that with those that might be interested. Thank you. So I'm here with uh, Courtney Hudson. She works at Rise Against Hunger. And Rise Against Hunger was the first uh, award winner for our Excellence in Sustainable Development I wanted to have her go through and kind of talk through the project that they submitted and some of the work they've been doing to apply Lean and Six Sigma concepts to their nonprofit work. And so, Courtney, do you want to introduce yourself and give your most recent job title? I know you've had some uh, a lot of ha- activity happening at the organization. So, uh, and then just uh, how you got into Rise Against Hunger, and then share a little bit of some of the improvement work you guys have done. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Brian. Um, so my name is Courtney Hudson. I am the centralized distribution warehouse network manager. Um, and so I got started with Rise Against Hunger in 2016, and um, we were running a traditional model, um, which I'll get further into as the as the presentation goes on. But um, I opened up our first ever centralized distribution warehouse down in Southern California. Since then, we've opened up two additional ones, and I've kind of moved into more of a remote role, remotely managing uh, the warehouse managers at those three sites. Um, And so it's been a really fun experience in my career, kind of building an entire operation model from the ground up. It's been super fun to get creative and innovative with different strategies and ideas, um, which um, I'm really looking forward to sharing with you guys today. I got into the work with Rise Against Hunger, and I'll actually give you guys more information about our organization as a whole in just a few minutes, but um, I got into nonprofit work in general uh, ever since college. I knew that I wanted to help those in need. Um, I didn't really know necessarily how or in what capacity how I wanted to help them or maybe where my strengths were going to be best utilized in order to help those um, um, less developed countries overseas. I volunteered abroad in college in Delhi, India, and Moshi, Tanzania. Um, so I've worked with some of our partners um, directly in those countries, and I just have fallen, fell, fallen in love with the mission ever since. Um, and so it's been really fun working with Rise Against Hunger because our organization as a whole has so many facets that we try to um, you know, help those impoverished communities. Um, without just only just giving them meals, but actually empowering those communities and teaching them sustainable practices so that eventually they can turn to uh, Rise Against Hunger and say, hey, you know what, we don't actually need your help or your meals anymore. 
Um, yeah, cool. And so that's a little bit how of the background. The, how did, sorry, how did you get to the program in school? Was that part of your uh, study, Reinsupply Supply Chain, did you say? Well, how did you connect with those organizations? Yeah, so I, I ran a, I was a president of a nonprofit in college that was actually against, I was fighting human trafficking. And so when you kind of boil down a lot of the social issues and social justice issues that we have in our world today, it kind of just boils down to people don't have their basic needs, which is food, water, shelter. Um, and when you don't have those basic needs, it's pretty crazy the lengths that people will go to to get those basic needs. Um, and so I was involved in those in that nonprofit in college, um, but I really, really identified with the international problems. I felt like there there's a lot of resources for United States citizens um, and programs for them to get the help that they need. Um, but I felt like overseas there there was just lack of infrastructure. So um, and you hear it kind of that narrative over and over again that you, those organizations that have shipped over MRI machines to Africa to help, but they don't have mm -hmm steady lines of power so they can't use those machines and so it's really boils down to them not having what they need um, and so I just did research while I was in college to find uh, cross-cultural solutions which is a nonprofit um, and I actually had a fundraise for both of my volunteer abroad trips and I taught English as well as other subjects over there for a couple months at a time so that's a little bit about me so I will go ahead and jump right into my presentation how did you end up at Rise Against Hunger? Was that just like a job posting or did you reach out to them or had you volunteered with them before? So I actually got right out of college a different job with a uh, mentoring at-risk youth nonprofit in the Bay Area in California. And it was fun and it was great, um, but I just felt like I wasn't making a big enough impact there that I, I was getting a little stir crazy within even just the first couple of months. So I was doing more research about international nonprofits um, that kind of focused their efforts on um, countries overseas. And that came about Rise Against Hunger. At the time, we obviously rebranded. It was called Stop Hunger Now, which was our old name. Um, but I just really fell in love with the mission, and I really liked how the organization itself wasn't just distributing meals, but they were really trying to empower the communities um, through teaching them, you know, sustainable farming, teaching them um, how to grow crops for themselves, how to, how to, how to uh, you know, make things so that they could sell them in the markets, and really, really teaching these communities how to provide for themselves so that we could back out of, uh, back out of these cities. And so I really liked that kind of full circle mentality. Um, and so I, I, I immediately connected with, with uh, Stop Hunger Now at the time and then have been with the organization ever since, almost four years now. I'll go ahead and move forward. So my presentation today okay. is about Rise Against Hunger operational models. So when I first joined the organization, when I first joined the organization, everybody, every location in the organization, there was 20 at the time, um, operated the same way. We adopted a growth mindset and a growth strategy that we really wanted to, you know, reach more cities and at a faster pace. Our goal and our mission at Rise Against Hunger is to end, 20, end hunger by the year 2030, which is also the United Nations goal as well. Um, and so in this presentation, I'll kind of walk through how we've taken strides these past couple of years to get there. Um, throughout my presentation, I'll give you a little bit of, bit of background on Rise Against Hunger, the organization. Um, why we adopted the centralized distribution model, 
some of the resources that we used to make sure that we were operating in the most efficient way possible, um, including SIPOC analysis, value streaming maps, value stream maps, warehouse layouts, the implementation of 5S and safety, and then the long-term efficiencies and improvements. When I first submitted this presentation um, for the sustainability award, um, it must have been, geez, Brian, I don't know, not a, not a full year ago, but definitely quite some time ago. And since then, we've actually yeah. even seen, we've even seen some major strides to adopting what is actually in this presentation throughout our entire organization. Um, so I'll, I'll explain that more as, as uh, towards the end of the presentation. Okay. Yeah, so and also uh, that we are recording, sorry, we're recording this okay. in um, late March. 2020, and so I think, yeah, you submitted maybe end of 2018 or something like that, or early 2019. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's and been so, yeah, we've got a lot of stuff going on right now at this time with this COVID virus. So if anyone's listening to this, I'll just give you a time frame of where we're at right now. So thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks, Brian. So Rise Against Hunger, we're an international hunger relief organization. We distribute food and life-changing aid to the world's most vulnerable um, and hopes to end hunger by 2030. And so you can see our impact there at the bottom. And so just to kind of explain the way that our model works, um, our main source of revenue and how we actually package our dehydrated meals is a picture on the left. So we host meal packing events, uh, particularly with corporate groups, volunteer groups, schools, faith-based organizations, or community-based organizations like a Rotary or Kiwanis clubs. Um, they reach out to us and say, hey, we have a group of, I don't know, we're scalable. So anywhere between 50 volunteers to 2,000 volunteers. Um, we want to package meals. How many meals can we package in a two-hour time frame? Um, and then the actual host pays, donates the 34 cents per meal for all the food that we're going to package with their volunteer group. And so each meal that we have is rice, dehydrated vegetables, a vitamin sachet, and then a uh, a scoop of dehydrated soy protein. Um, these meals are all the same. Um, they're distributed to 74 countries that we serve. Uh, they're all vegetarian because a lot of the countries that we serve maybe are vegetarian. Um, and the actual meals that we package in general are just very bland tasting because we, search, we serve such a multitude of different countries. They typically will add um, you know, spices or if they have meat available into the meals themselves to make them more accustomed to their culture and their way, way of life. And so we package those meals at these meal packing events. And what the CE team does, which is our community engagement teams, they're the ones that are out in the field in the United States facilitating those meal packing events with the volunteers. Once all that meal, all the food is packaged up, we load up our containers in a one container, ocean container, we can package with 285,000 meals. And we ship that out uh, to one of our 74 partners that we have in 74 countries, typically school-based feeding programs, as well as maybe vocational elderly care programs. Um, and they distribute the food to their populations over there. Now, these partners, we call them partners in these 74 countries, are essentially nonprofits that are over in those countries, and they aren't really affiliated with Rise Against Hunger other than the fact that they receive aid from us. So they're completely standalone nonprofits. Um, they have their own board of directors. They're kind of doing what they need to do in their own country. 
and we're just helping them do that. And so a lot of our beneficiaries overseas are, for example, the kids that you see in the picture on the right, um, a lot of times their only meal that they get in a day are our Rise Against Hunger meals. And so we try to pack them full of nutrients so that those kids um, are encouraged to go to school to eat those meals and encouraged to get an education which does end those cycles of poverty. Um, so that's a little bit about Rise Against Hunger. You are about to go on a journey to see how a Rise Against Hunger meal makes it into the hands of those who need it most. Welcome to one of Rise Against Hunger's school feeding programs located in Lusaka, Zambia, where over 40 children gather to learn and share a lunch. For many of these children, this will be their only meal of the day. These meals do more than just nourish the body. They allow the students to focus, advance their education, and most importantly, provide hope for a brighter future. Every day, Rise Against Hunger meals are served around the globe in medical clinics, vocational training programs, elder care facilities, and schools just like this. Each meal is a moment to celebrate. It's a step on the path to zero hunger by the year 2030. Let's take a look at how each of these moments is made possible. It all begins when a group gathers to host and take part in a meal packaging event. Before the big day, raw ingredients are ordered, prepped and loaded onto Rise Against Hunger trucks to be delivered. When the event is set up, volunteers begin filing in, donning gloves and hairnets and getting settled at their stations, knowing with confidence that alongside their friends, family and members of the community, they are going to be changing lives with each meal they package. At the conclusion of a meal packaging event, these pallets are sent to our on-the-ground partners via shipping containers. After reaching the destination port, containers are unloaded and pallets of meals are distributed to our impact partners. The meals are prepared in bulk to feed the children at the school. The effect of these meals is community-wide the hands at our meal packaging events are the last ones to touch the meals before they are unboxed and served to those children and families who need them the most. Together, we can create a world where hunger doesn't exist. How are you guys affected right now? Are you able to still ship um, food? Are you able to still operate? Great uh, or maybe question. You're get to that so, yeah, no, that's a great question. I'll, I'll, I'll answer it now. Um, so because of COVID-19 and the restrictions on uh, gatherings of, I think it's now 10 or more people, obviously yeah. we cannot package our meals in the United States right now or anywhere overseas for that matter. Um, and so we have had to cancel all of our meal packing events. Typically this time, March, April, and May is actually one of our busy seasons because we are a seasonal business. But because of the virus, we are not able to package meals. Um, which means our beneficiaries overseas are not receiving meals. Um, and so that's been a really tough pill for us to swallow because not only is it affecting, of course, um, Americans who aren't able to work or who are stuck in their houses, um, but also our, our beneficiaries overseas aren't receiving meals. Um, right now, all of our events, Brian, are pushed out until June. So it's a, it's a big big uh, gap in our, our ability to package meals for our, our folks overseas. Okay, so to get into the kind of operational model. model. So 
Um, when I first was hired with Rise Against Hunger, we had 20 U.S. locations, and they were all considered traditional locations. So what that means is each location is required to have a warehouse, heavy machinery, staff hired. To open up one of these locations in a city would take us anywhere from nine months to one year in time. Um, and a huge financial investment because we're signing seven-year leases. So we have a lot of cash tied up in these individual locations. Um, each individual location with our community engagement team were required to forecast their own ingredients, purchase those ingredients, store the inventory, clean the equipment, go out and actually run the meal packing events, market the meal packing events, and rent the trucks, and then come back, consolidate the finished goods of the meals, and then actually schedule the shipments as well. So you are a community engagement staff four years ago at Rise Against Hunger. You wore several different hats. And as I'm sure we all know, when you wear several different hats like that, um, you can't really wear any which one of those hats very well because you're spread very thin. Um, and so what we wanted to do was centralize the forecasting, purchasing, and inventory storage. We wanted to allow the growth for more locations. So instead of waiting nine months to a year to open up a new location, we wanted to be able to, if we wanted to drop a location, say, in Denver, Colorado, that would only take two months' time. And then we wanted to standardize processes and procedures. So if you were to go to a meal packing event in Southern California, that meal packing event would actually look drastically different than if you went to a meal packing event in North Carolina at our location. There wasn't any standardization of processes, procedures, uh, meal packing event experiences, anything like that. And then we also wanted to reduce cash spent on leased warehouse space and machineries, machinery. We had a lot of cash tied up in warehouse lease space. Um, and it was also a big commitment. So we actually tried to open up a location, say, in Salt Lake City, and we've had it completely fail. And it was a huge financial loss for us because we had to invest so much money on that leased warehouse space and the machinery. Um, and so we wanted to kind of mitigate that risk, make it not so risky to open up new locations in new cities. So that's why our operational team decided to pursue the CDW model, or Centralized Distribution Warehouse Model. We wanted to centralize all the meal packing event equipment and raw materials. So instead of making the community engagement staff also be operational and supply chain staff, we wanted to separate those job descriptions. Let the people that are trained in warehousing handle the warehousing. We wanted to create small satellite locations that operate out of third-party logistics warehouses. So as you can see right here, um, the first ever CDW that we opened was in California. I opened it. And you can see all the satellite locations opening up. So instead of having one huge location in Santa Ana that covers this entire half of the state, opening up little micro locations that operate out of 3PLs. Operating out of 3PLs works really great for our model because we're only charged for what we use at that third-party logistics warehouse. So as a nonprofit, we're trying to cut costs anywhere that we can. So, like I said, we're a seasonal business. So, in December, when everybody is on Christmas or holiday break, um, we're not being charged for warehouse space, say, in San Diego that we're not using because we're not packaging meals there with any hosts. And then we wanted to increase okay. operational excellence, which is standardize those process and procedures. And we wanted to increase meal packing at satellite locations. So, like you saw on a couple slides ago, we package about 76 million meals a year. We need to package a lot more meals in order to end hunger by 20, 
by 2030. So how can we maintain that growth mindset and rapidly speed up our numbers, our growth market mar margins, um, so that we can reach that goal by 2030? This was what kind of started this conversation about the centralized distribution warehouse. Um, we decided that California was the best place to start just because we had such huge markets in California and we saw such potential. And for those Californians that are listening to this uh, webinar, as you know, traffic is really, really crazy in California. Um, so although you may be out of San Jose and you have a Sacramento uh, event, that could be anywhere from four hours to driving if you are driving at the right time during that traffic hour. So we wanted to create those micro locations. So instead of our community engagement staff sitting in their trucks, going to and from meal packing events, that they could actually cut down on their driving time and spend more time marketing um, you know, their markets in their area. So in 2017, this is what um, our location kind of map over the United States looked like. Um, each location managed their own community engagement activities and their meal packing events. And they also managed, like I mentioned, ingredient inventory, packaged meals, and meal packing equipment. This was our spread of 20 U.S. locations. Um, kind of goes without saying that we're a predominantly East, based, or East Coast based organization, um, which gave us kind of even more um, kind of power to opening up our first CDW over here on the West Coast so we could spread a little bit more evenly. Is that because uh, where was Rise Against Hunger set up? Our headquarters is in Raleigh, North Carolina. Okay. Yeah, so over here. So it kind of makes sense why we grew, we grew like that. Yeah. And so with the CDW implementation, um, we decided, you know what, we're going we're gonna to implement this in three locations. So the first was the California CDW, and we actually uh, set up four new locations at the same time as opening up that centralized distribution warehouse. Um, and then right after that, we decided to open up Florida and add three more locations over here in Florida. And then we also decided to open up Indianapolis, which would cover the Midwest. Um, so our new locations for California were San Jose, Sacramento, Los Angeles, and San Diego. And we converted our Southern California location um, to the CDW. So instead of going into this new CDW model and deciding to go lease a much bigger facility in Southern California to handleize the centralized distribution for the newly added satellite locations, we decided to convert what we had as the Southern California location and kind of just convert it temporarily for a year to act as the CDW. Um, so it was less risk and also we could actually open it up a lot quicker. Um, so you'll see later on in the slides when I show you some pictures of some of the activities we were doing at that warehouse, it'll make sense why uh, you know, capacity, storage capacity was one of our main issues that we were trying to mitigate was, was solely because our, our warehouse was just a little bit too small, which since then what's we've actually C upgraded quite a bit. What's a CEM? A CEM is a community, community engagement manager. So each of those satellite locations has a CEM. It's just a, it's just a person, uh, a staff member that actually manages uh, all the activities at that, at that location. So the actual CDW concept and model. Um, so centralized warehousing activities, we were going to do a better job at forecasting. So something that we saw at Rise Against Hunger, and Brian, you know this more than anybody just from our conversations outside of this webinar, but folks weren't 
skilled and weren't trained on how to accurately forecast. Therefore, you had huge discrepancies in inventory. You'd either have, um, you know, a location that has 150 days on hand supply of inventory, or you'd have them where they are constantly running out and we have to spend significantly more amounts of money just to expedite shipments of inventory to that location. So nobody was really trained on forecasting um, or inventory or prep time or lead times or anything like that. So what we wanted to do was take that activity back into the side of operations. So meal packing, ingredient inventory. Packaging equipment, preparing ingredients and equipment for meal packing events, and then finished goods inventory, which is those packaged meals. So up until this point, each location um, at Rise Against Hunger packaged their equipment for differently. And so this is the meal packing equipment that volunteers use to package the meals at the actual meal packing event site. At each different location, they packaged and they kitted the equipment differently. They actually sometimes had completely different equipment than other locations. There was no standard there, which kind of feeds into that, you know, you could go to two different meal packing events and feel like you're at completely two different organizations. And so we were really trying to bridge that gap. Um, by creating kitted meal packing equipment pallets. Um, and so that's something that we did with the CW concept. And then we wanted to focus um, on distribution and warehousing as a service to the community engagement staff. So typically in for-profit companies, your customer is the one that is buying and receiving the good that you are preparing. Um, but at our organization, um, the CDWs, our customer, as CDW staff is actually our community engagement teams. So the community engagement teams, um, which are these satellite locations, they, once they plan a meal packing event, they actually send that order to the CDW. We prep the pallets to provide for that event and we send it back to that CDW or that satellite location. They use local transport. They go run the meal packing event. When they're done, it, the, they drive back to their satellite location, which is typically a third-party logistics warehouse, and then they send all those goods back to the CDW location for us to kind of go through, clean the equipment, repack it, and focus on what's next. So, in a sense, our customer as CDW staff are our people, our satellite locations, and so really focusing on that being a service to the community engagement teams. And this actually freed up a lot more time for our community engagement staff to focus on prospecting and relationship building and growing their markets. So we were seeing all this time and focus lost on the CE side because they weren't, they didn't have enough time and capacity to actually try to grow their markets, get more meals, get more meal packing events. And so now we could expand and grow faster without having to worry about warehousing at each location. So to do this, we decided to focus on essentially six processes at the CDW locations. Event staging of equipment, event staging of ingredients, the actual raw wash, sanitize, and rekitting process of that returned equipment post the meal packing event, the finished goods or the, the packaged meals consolidation and shipping out process, the new equipment kitting process, so when we do grow, we need more equipment to supply for our volunteers, so what that kind of looks like, and then vendor shipments into the CDW, so raw material shipments into the CDW. And you see, you'll see um, a lot of our customers are those satellite teams, kind of explain that a little bit further. Um, and then, of course, the finished goods are going to our impact team and global logistics coordinator and our recipients overseas. And so we used the SIPOC analysis to really 
um, kind of draw out what are the main competencies that we want CDW staff to master, be the best in class. And so that's kind of what we focused on here in the SIPOC analysis. We created a warehouse process and value stream map, um, and it kind of shows you what I explained a little bit earlier. So our suppliers ship everything to the CDWs. We store everything. We pick orders, according to FIFO, for meal packing event orders at our six locations. We transport it to our community engagement staff, to their 3PLs. They run the event. They send back the dirty, we call it dirty meal packing event returns and the finished goods. Um, we put it away and we clean and re-kit the equipment. Um, once we have 285,000 meals, we move, we build the pallets and we load and store and ship the FGIs to feeding the customer, which is our partners over here. And so we were able to see how much time it took for us to do each of these activities, which really helped us identify where we wanted to cut down on time. So that was the next slide here was, okay, what are some improvement ideas that we can harness our 5S and physical design and layout of this warehouse to really cut down on the, the time between these major activities? Are you interested in learning more about Lean and Six Sigma? Or are you looking to expand your existing skills to apply them to environmental impacts at your work or in the local community? Check out our free online course called Lean Six Sigma and the Environment on thinkific.com. We'll teach you about the Lean Forms of Waste and Waste Walks, which stands for Water, Air Emissions, Solid Waste, Toxins, and Energy. We'll go over examples of reducing electricity and solid waste, teach you how to involve your facilities and environment safety and health personnel. We'll provide guidance on how to green your 5S and Lean Kaizen events and many other tools specific to finding environmental opportunities. Learn more at LeanSixSigmaEnvironment.org. So we added some pallet racking. Um, we did FIFO storage. We did, we did equipment storage in a creative way. We removed all unnecessary items. We created visual boards with packing lists. Um, we created flow changes in the warehouse with arrows so that we knew how the activity was going to flow through the warehouse so we didn't zigzag across our warehouse and have to repeat steps. Um, we created mobile mobile carts so that instead of having to walk back and forth from the office, we had everything we needed on these carts and we could flow through the process without, you know, any any uh, bumps or in the streamline. And so we kind of decided what, what areas of focus we wanted to focus, uh, wanted to start 5S projects on. And so I kind of go over that a little bit further over here. So this was our original uh, April 2018 layout. Um, we had no pallet racking, as you can see. We just had pallet positions. Uh, we had like, these wood shelves that were already in the warehouse. Again, we took this over from a traditional warehouse model. So um, we did the best that we could with kind of converting this to make it work as best for the CW for the time being. Um, we had 252 total pallet positions in the warehouse, the way it was status quo. Now, with all of our improvement ideas, this is what we turned this warehouse into. We upped the total pallet positions to 345, which was what we needed when we were going to supply the goods to six locations. We added pallet racking in several areas. And uh, you can see, you may be a little too small for you guys to see uh, over, the, over the computer, but we created process flows of, okay, well, if we were going to put this pallet racking here, 
what process were we going to flow through here? Um, keeping, of course, the roll-up doors in mind because we were essentially shipping and receiving every single day of the week. Um, and so we were able to add almost 100 additional pallet spaces to our space, just creating a more efficient practice. So some pictures, because I feel like pictures are the best way to explain some of this stuff. So you'll see the before. This is our ingredient staging area in the warehouse. Um, since there was no pallet racking, we were just double stacking. But you can see that there's a lot of mess everywhere. You'll see equipment bins over here to the left. You'll see finished goods, which are those boxes that say rise on them over here. Um, this method of organization was also very hard to, you know, abide by first in, first out inventory because um, when you got new inventory in, it kind of just jumbled it all without keeping, you know, a straight standard of what you were pulling and how old it was. Um, so we went ahead and we sorted out all the unnecessary items, we cleaned the area, we removed the trash, and we created aisles and walkways. Um, and so you'll see the after over here. We added pallet racking. Our FIFO was all of our newest ingredients were at the top, and when we finished the oldest ingredients at the bottom, we shifted everything down. So anytime you were receiving a raw shipment um, and of raw materials, that would go straight up to the top because it would be our newest product. Um, and so you can see that um, on the left, you would kind of roll through here and grab everything from heaviest to lightest in the staging process. You'll see over here, which is a different area of the warehouse, we got a pallet wrap machine. So we were trying to cut out those activities that needed to be done, but were probably taking too much time to do. So this was our staging area for the out-of-market uh, or out-of-state meal packing events. We decided, you know what, we're going to create an entire placarding system so everything has a place and we can identify it really quickly um, and cut out some of those unnecessary items. Uh, like using one of our staff to wrap pallets and actually adding in a pallet wrap machine here to do that for us. As a nonprofit, we probably run leaner than most companies. So at this location, which would pack, store, ship, consolidate goods for six locations, we only had two full-time staff here. And we would hire temporary staff or temporary laborers during our busy season. So any time savings was super important in this model. So you can see the before, it's just super all over the place, handwritten placards on the pallets, um, several different items of materials over here. We have finished goods, uh, equipment, random boxes, and we went ahead and cleaned that up and gave it some standardization. This is our veg vegetable and vitamin refurbishing area. Um, so you can see that on the left, the before, very messy, cluttered. Uh, if you were to walk in, you wouldn't know where to even start or where the person before you had left off. Um, one of our main goals in this 5S implementation was we wanted, if I was working the first shift, we wanted to have my employee come in afterwards and know exactly where to, to leave where I left off and where to get going and not have it be a guessing game. We wanted it to be very, very streamlined. And so you'll see that um, in the after pictures over here as well. Now, the equipment area of the warehouse was probably the most difficult. Uh, there was that wooden shelving I was uh, referencing a little bit earlier, but it just was really out of sorts. Uh, there was really no rhyme or reason to the way it was set up. Um, the before was very messy. Before we got the pallet racking, which is the during photos back here, we did the best we could by cleaning it up with what we had. And then on the next slide here, you'll see after once we got the pallet racking in, that there was a lot more um, you know, organization to this. And we had placards put up 
letting letting whoever was packing the equipment know how many goes in each bin, how many to add to each pallet, really focusing on process flow, so doing heaviest to lightest equipment so you can just drag that pallet and pack it as you go. Um, so we, we definitely standardized and sustained this area of the warehouse as well. The equipment cleaning and storage area. So because we comply with FDA regulations, we have to clean all of our meal packing equipment because it's touching the food that we're packaging for other people. So as you can see before, um, there was just kind of random carts. We were actually out of, com uh, we actually weren't complying with FDA regulations because our carts weren't covered on the left pictures. Um, and so we went ahead and added a second sink so we had more capacity to wash. We added um, some safety mats. We added safety curtains and added more drying space capacity, um, gloves, uh, and then we actually created a process flow. So we kept we kept uh, all of these little wheels on the carts so that when we packaged one up with clean, we could roll it around to the back and it actually allowed for mobility in some storage, um, which, which was really helpful with our small space. And so this is probably my favorite part of the 5S project at this location was the mobile work cart stations. So you can see one of the work carts over here on the before picture. Um, they weren't being utilized at all. And so we actually added two more. And instead of you having to walk around searching for pallet wrap or tape or, you know, scissors or a box cutter or a Sharpie or any of our uh, special paperwork, um, I wanted you to be able to, right when you walked in, if you had to do something in the warehouse, you grab one of those carts and it has everything you need on it. And it's kind of nice because it's a little station for you to write on. Um, so we added two more of those carts and it, it definitely improved the safety of the warehouse because it was less people walking around aimlessly looking for things. And it also gave a place for all of those little items because those box cutters and scissors can be dangerous if we have volunteers in the warehouse. Um, and so those were probably my favorite improvement to the entire model. Something so simple, but it makes such a big difference um, with your workflow. It, 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 it drastically helped us go faster and be more efficient with our work, absolutely. And then we also created placards. So you kind of saw on some of the pallets before, they were just writing with Sharpie on the actual pallet wrap uh, what that pallet was supposed to be. Um, and so we didn't want to do that, especially with adding four new locations. So what we did was went ahead and purchased through Uline these little uh, neon placard labels. And we stamped them ourselves because we're all about making, doing the cheapest option, but doing it for the sake of efficiency. Um, and so we created a visual board. So anytime we would receive orders from one of our satellites, one of our six satellites, so each of them had an assigned color, we would print out the orders for the ingredients and then print out the orders for equipment and post them up here on our order board. That way, whether it was me, my employee, or maybe our temp laborers, all they had to do was come into the warehouse, grab what their orders were that were posted on the board and start getting to work. Um, so it was very clear to, and it was a really nice visualization of, okay, we're completely done with orders this week, or you know, look at all these papers we still have left on the board, all these orders we need to get to work. Um, and so each color corresponded to one of our locations. So we had Orange County, Los Angeles, San Diego, San Jose, San Francisco, and Sacramento. So those are the six colors. And then we had the purple labels for our out-of-market events, which are just out-of-state events. Um, and so it kept us a lot more organized. And you can see here all the placarding of this work area over here as well. And then visuals, which was also very fun. So we created visuals in the warehouse to just, 
um, with floor striping um, to indicate, indicate floor requirements. So you'll see this is actually the same exact warehouse layout that I showed you previously where you see you know, the ingredient storage over here and the equipment storage up here, um, but actually creating lines on the ground with arrows that tell whoever's in the warehouse exactly where they should be going with that pallet. Um, and it keeps it all very streamlined and very tight because then you, and it also actually alleviates from errors as well. If you're moving from point A to point B, everything that you need to package during those two points is actually just perfectly placarded there for you to grab. Um, so it's less forgetting and it keeps less, um, leaves less room for human error. And then something over here on the bottom left picture was our auditing area. So when we got back our meal packing equipment bins from our satellite locations, volunteers are the ones that are repacking those equipment bins after their meal packing event. So although we like to trust our volunteers, um, you don't always know if you know Jerry from some corporate event who's trying to get to a call is counting all the scales perfectly as he puts them back in. <laughs> so we actually created an audit area. So when you were unpacking those pallets, when the return shipments came back, you put them into the scale audit little uh, tub area highlighted in orange um, and whenever we had free time we would actually open up those bins recount everything redistribute and put it back on the pallet which indicates that it's counted and it's ready to go for the next shipment and to remind anybody who was in the warehouse because we oftentimes do use volunteers to help us with some of these warehouse activities we have a placard up here that tells you exactly how many scales how many scale trays should be in this bin and we have that for all of our equipment bins and then here's our visual shipping board and 5S board. So this was it previously before. Um, so you can see there's actually like a random coffee table in here and I don't even know <laughs> why that was there, but hey, we got it moved out of there. Um, but you can see there really wasn't any board um, or any organization to the board. So we actually created an order board, which I showed you previously. And then we also created a 5S board telling you the pallet pathway guide. What do each of these arrows mean on the ground? Um, and gives you all your placards that you might need here, all your instruments to keep the warehouse safe and clean and sustainable. Um, and so that was a really fun thing, this little cork board that we, that we uh, or peg board that we implemented here as well. And I won't go through this whole list. I was actually thinking about deleting this, but it, I decided to keep it just for, you know, looks good. Um, but this is actually just our initial 5S action item. Some of them were easier um, than others. So all office spaces and restrooms professionally clean, just giving us a blank slate so that we can actually prioritize and organize efficiently with a clean environment. Um, and then also just maybe making us OSHA's, uh, OSHA certified, so like making sure that we're compliant with OSHA, so posting emergency exit floor plans, um, making sure that we have shatterproof lights, um, all this good stuff is stuff that we implemented at this warehouse. And then this was our um, throughput estimates. So we wanted to make sure that we were planning the warehouse according to the total capacity that we were expecting. So you could see that during a peak week, um, we have a, quite more meals that we're packaging in a week versus the average week. Now, let me remind you, 285,000 meals qualifies as a full ocean container. So we're talking about our peak weeks. We're packaging a full ocean container worth of supplies and then some in just one week. So our peak weeks are very heavy at our CDWs. Um, and so you can actually see our peak month. We're talking about over a, almost a, a million and a half meals that we're packaging in a month. Um, 
some t- at some of our other uh, locations at Rise Against Hunger, they package 1.4 million meals in their entire year. So we're talking about these CDWs having the capacity and the time and the organization to do what some of our locations do an entire year in an entire month. And we were able to do it because of all of these efficiencies and working throughout all the details. On the shipping container, yes. um, is it possible to send smaller amounts or is it just like the same price? Or you mentioned that 285000 is that is that the best economic way to get a shipment sent over by, and it goes by ship? Yes. So if we, if it's a full length container, we can ship about 20 pallets if we do two spin wheels with the, the way that we load the pallets. Um, our pallets are 84 inches high, so we stack a lot of meals on those pallets. Um, the reason we can send 285,000 meals per container is actually the weight as well as the, the pallet count. Um, typically, it's 43,500 pounds is a full container of our meals. So we, we hit right underneath that 44,000 mark. Um, we don't ever send partial containers. What we do do sometimes, though, is say we'll send 10 pallets of meals, and then we'll send 10 pallets of gift and kind donations. So gift and kind donations are um, donations that aren't meals that some companies donate. So a lot of times it's medical supplies protein powder, um, Under Armour Armor donated a bunch of shoes and activewear, and we just send that on pallets. Um, but we do try to always fill up the containers because if not, it's the same price to move it, and you're not getting as much uh, you know, benefit when they're unloading it for the beneficiaries. The way that our organization works, though, is we do all the prospecting for the meal packing events. We pay for all the storage of it, um, all the consult- consolidation, all of our Rice Against Hunger employees. Our beneficiaries overseas, our partners, which are those nonprofits that are, have been completely established in these countries, they actually pay for the shipping of the container. So the reason why we do that is because a lot of times in these countries, they're conflicted. A lot of times they're war-ridden, um, and it's very difficult to push these containers through ports over there and through customs. And so we have to have buy-in from our partners that, okay, they've invested, say, $5,000 in shipping this container over to Tanzania. They have somebody and a contact on-site at the Tanzanian port where they're going to help push this through customs for, with us. Because if not, we're at risk of having a, a container worth of 90000 dollars in meals could potentially stop at a port and we we don't have the capacity to push it through anywhere or the contacts to even do so. So we want buy-in from both both parties, our side as well as their side. So they're actually paying for it. So they probably want to get as most product and meals and aid for that that charge that they're going to have to pay for. Yeah, that makes sense. And then corresponding successes in 2019. So before we implemented the CW model, we the days of supply were 82 days on hand of supply. We brought that down to 52 days on hand of supply in just eight short months. The company averages 60. So although we weren't, although we were supplying the goods to six locations instead of one, we had better days of supply than our traditional locations because we let the professionals do the operational side of things. We had the second most accurate soy ordering forecasting, um, even though we were doing the ordering for six separate markets. So that was pretty pretty great as well. 
We created a safer work environment for staff and for our volunteers, complying uh, with FDA, California laws, and OSHA. But we effectively supported um, an operational model and the growth of 200% in satellite community engagement locations, and we did it successfully. We resulted in a 57% increase in productivity, and we received approval to convert all Rise Against Hunger traditional locations to CDW model, which I'll get into a little bit more in my next slide. Um, but what does that really mean in terms of ending hunger? So right down here, I show you kind of our increased number of meals packaged for our recipients, and you can see we go up and we go up even more. And this next year in 2020, we're adding more locations, so we're going up even more. We've seen an 8.8% in growth of meals. We've increased the longevity of our meals by ensuring FIFO is enforced. So instead of shipping over meals to our partners and saying, hey, you only have one year of shelf life on these meals, we're able to stretch those meals even further because we comply with the first in, first out, so that instead of them having, say, one year of life cycle with their meals, they actually have, say, a, a year and a half to use those meals. So we're, we're helping our recipients that way. We improved the data saving, the company overhead costs of non-value activities. So instead of hiring more tasks, are hiring more uh, employees to do tasks, we do the tasks more efficiently and save employees time, which saves the company money. And then lastly, we have more streamlined process, processes, allowing us to send out and receive gift and kind donations, such as protein powder. So we created a process and a standardization for receiving and storing gift and kind donations, which Brian, like I mentioned, is like the protein powder or um, you know, anything that a company might donate that's an actual um, item, so maybe clothing, medical supplies, we were able to handle more of that because we had now had a method of handling it and a process to handle it, which benefits our recipients. And so what does this mean for 2020? And this is a slide I added a couple days ago. Um, we had a new location open in January. We opened Phoenix, Arizona this past January, so just two months ago. And it only took us a month and a half to open. So we decided a month and a half before we opened Phoenix that we were already packaging about a million meals in Phoenix already, but we were doing them as out-of-market shipments, which means someone from California was flying out to do those events and then come back to their home location. Um, we decided, you know what, let's go ahead and open it. Without the centralized distribution model, it would have taken us nine months to a year to open up Phoenix. But because we already had this infrastructure in place, it only took us a month and a half to pop down location in the middle of Arizona. And that's what is so awesome about this model is because we can grow so rapidly without any financial investment. We signed a, a contract with a 3PL there um, with a $1,000 minimum. So if we do one shipment um, a month, it meets our $1,000 minimum and we're good to go there. And so it's really no, and we have, we don't, we can stop anytime we want. So if Phoenix turns out to be not successful, we can pull out and it's no money loss. And then leadership made a decision this year to convert all remaining traditional locations to CDW satellites. So my manager, who's director of expansion and supply chain and I are creating a two-year proposal to convert all these little red dots over here to CDW models. So what that means is that all of them will turn into satellite locations and will actually be opening up a few more centralized distribution warehouses nationwide to fulfill the needs of those new satellite locations. So it's a really, really exciting time for our organization. Um, this model has proven 
to be so valuable for the ending of hunger in our lifetime. And uh, I'm just super excited for the next two years as we continue to implement and continue to grow. I saw that your um, meals went up and increased. Is that primarily in California where you did the CDW pilot? Yes. So this is meals packed in California exclusively. Um, We typically as an organization go up um, in meal growth every year anywhere between 5 and 7% um, organizational wide. And so you can see that actually our 8.8% of growth in California is exceeding that company-wide average. Um, And we were able to do that while also marketing in brand new markets. So in San Diego, we only actually had about three meal packing events a year. Um, And so when you pop a a staff member there and say, okay, grow that market, it actually is pretty difficult to make it grow very rapidly because a lot of our, our, you know, our model is creating these relationships and making, and making people educated on world hunger um, and, and, and growing that rapport with them so that they trust our organization and what we're doing enough to invest in us, which is hosting a meal packing event. And so that doesn't happen overnight. And so we've seen that um, one of the, I wouldn't say mistakes with the model was that, but more of a learning curve for us was that it, it takes longer than a year to establish those relationships. So we can't expect that rapid growth overnight. It's going to take um, probably in between a year to two years for us to really, really see that spike in meals. And so we're still seeing it. And unfortunately, um, with this whole COVID-19, we're actually, um, it's really setting us back. And so I'm not sure that we'll see that that huge spike in growth this year either. But hopefully next year when we recover. (laughs) How do you guys measure the impact um, in the countries that you serve? I mean, it's, I imagine that would be difficult to determine, but do you have some anecdotal or some indicators that are saying that the increased meals are are working or that you're reaching more people or alleviating the hunger? Yeah, so one thing that you see in nonprofits a lot is not every nonprofit is super responsible with their finances um, or that follow-through mechanism. And so for us, it's very, very important that if we say our meals are going to serve a population, that they go and serve that population, that we know that. Um, And so we have our entire global impact team at Rise Against Hunger, which monitor our relationships and our partners with uh, those nonprofit partners we have overseas. And so to become a partner with us, you have to apply with Rise Against Hunger. We have to vet you for two years. So we have to um, know that that nonprofit that we're supplying meals to are fiscally responsible and they're doing good things for that country. And to be our partner, you have to do a lot of stuff on the back end. So we require pictures, require data. We want to know how many recipients at your, say, school in Tanzania are being served, um, how they're being served. We make site visits. So our global impact team are traveling around the world all the time doing site visit partners, making sure that everything's going okay. Um, you know, that, that the condition that the folks are making the meals in is all that. I actually went, um, and so they give us a lot of data on that. But um, I actually went, so after you've been with our organization for a year, you get to go on what we call a vision trip, which means you get to go to one of our partners overseas and actually deliver the meals yourself and talk to, you know, the those leaders of, of say, the schools or, you know, those nonprofits overseas and, and talk to them about, 
what a difference what we're doing in the United States is for them. Because sometimes it's easy at our organization to get kind of caught up in, you know, supply chain and operation, operations mm-hmm. and forget mm-hmm. that, you know, these meals are going to feed starving people overseas. And so I got sent to Belize to visit our partner there. It was really wonderful. I got to go to six schools in the southern uh, part of Belize that receive our meals. I got to watch them make the meals. I got to eat the meals with the, some of the little kids. They were so happy. And um, one story that really struck me, um, and I think this really speaks to your question, Brian, is they uh, one of the teachers who was from the United States came out here, um, came to Belize to actually start this whole program with the schools in Belize. And um, she said that the kids were fighting on recess um, or they were just sitting alone and didn't really have a lot of um, you know, energy to run around and play. They were fighting in class. They wouldn't pay attention. They would talk. They would misbehave. Um, and then she came back to the United States. She ended up getting a contract with Rise Against Hunger. So we started shipping meals over there. She went back to Belize a year later, and she said that since all the kids were fed, there was no fighting. Everybody was paying attention. And she said it's really, really interesting how if kids have their basic needs met that they're able to learn and that just not having food and I mean that would that would engulf your whole life is just not even being able to eat every single day what you need to eat to survive Um, of course you're going to misbehave and so she really her story Mm -hmm. really struck me because our meals aren't just meals they're hope giving these kids a better life they're encouraging these parents to send their kids to school because the parents at least know they're getting fed but they're also the they're, they're getting educated, and that's what ends these cycles of poverty, and that's what ends world hunger. And so that story really, really resonated with me because we are making a difference. These, these meals are making a difference. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So uh, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a couple other questions for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you talk about the event experience for the companies that come in and um, pay for the meals and then bring their teams. So, so the other piece was we, when we had our conference last year in Orlando, we went to the Orlando facility. Uh, I met Jason and he kind of showed us the kind of the setup and the cleaning operation and tagging of bags. And but we didn't see an actual event. We just saw that through a video. I think you provided to us. But can you just talk through the uh, that experience and why an organization should consider bringing or having their employees come and participate in one of these events and contribute to it? Yes. So a lot of the questions that we get, um, especially from operational folks, is, um, well, if you're having volunteers package the meals, why wouldn't you just hire more staff and package meals in your warehouses alone? And so that was kind of an interesting question that we get a lot. And the reason is is because we're trying to spread a movement. We're trying to have others advocate on the behalf of not only Rise Against Hunger, but ending world hunger in general, which is why we have this meal packing event experience for volunteers to come out and actually put their hands on hunger. It's a very different thing asking somebody to donate money, which is always great. Every nonprofit needs them to donate money, but to actually donate time is one of the most valuable things that you can donate. And so these companies and these churches or these uh, schools, they want to instill the power of volunteerism in their employees or in their students. And so we offer an outlet for that. 
um, so it's not just giving money, it's not just fundraising to write a check, it's actually you're doing something for two hours and it really empowers people and it really makes people excited about volunteering and ending hunger because you're actually packaging the meals yourself. And so these companies like doing it because it's a, um, a lot of time it's like a team building exercise or a mm -hmm. team building activity yeah. and they'll do it around the holidays or they'll do it around spring break and it's super fun. Um, you get to kind of put tables together. There's about six volunteers around each table, and everybody's talking, and everybody's having fun. They have hairnets on. They have gloves. They're packaging the meals, um, pouring all four ingredients into our bags, and then they actually weigh the bags. They seal the bags, and then they sticker the bags with the expiration date and the lot tracking information. Those volunteers' hands are the last hands to touch those bags and put them into the boxes. Um, before they're opened up on the other end in another country, feeding those recipients. Um, and so it's, it's a really powerful model that we've built. And it's really encouraged, you know, the spirit of volunteerism and giving back and, and not just giving money, but giving your time, which is so, so valuable. Um, and so that's our meal packing experience. We have whoever is hosting the event, so whether that's a corporate partner, a faith-based partner, a community partner, or a school, we have them donate the 34 cents per meal, um, and it's a kind of a sliding scale. So the more meals you package, the less you have to pay per meal, just because obviously there's certain costs associated, such as renting the truck, the staff time, um, the shipping costs, that it kind of remains the same if you package more meals, so we kind of can lower it a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but we have the companies or whoever the host is make that tax-deductible donation to us to cover the meals. And that's why we're, we were able to grow so rapidly is because it's a really sustainable method of, uh, you know, receiving revenue in order to keep, keep our mission going, but also interacting and creating an outlet for people to volunteer. Um, and so instead of us, you know, hiring more Rise Against Hunger staff who are already passionate about ending world hunger and shoving us into a tiny warehouse to package meals, we want to go out and reach. I mean, we reach a lot of volunteers and we call them hunger advocates. So um, we have millions of volunteers over at the United States that have worked with us. Um, and so, I mean, we have over 454 million meals packaged by volunteers. And so that's a movement. We're creating a movement to end hunger by 2030. Yeah, I think there's a lot of value for an organization for the, from the team building side of it and also feeling like they're um, – you know, that, that time to educate and find out and learn about the problem. I mean, it's, if the company just donates the money, they don't get that buy-in. And then the employees see, wow, our company has committed time and money to this cause. Uh, this is a nice company to work for. And so I think there's huge benefits for an organization to consider these types of, you know, hands-on engaging activities with, with organizations like yours. And what's even cooler about our model, Brian, too, is we're completely scalable, and we come to you. So if you have a conference room that can hold the amount of volunteers that you want us to package meals in, we drive everything to you. We load it all in. We set it up. All you do is have people come to wherever on your campus or your site or in your building, package the meals for two hours, and you're only taking away, you know, two hours of productivity from staff time to come out and volunteer because it's so accessible and so easy. Whereas a lot of these other organizations, you have to go off site and it turns into more of an entire day activity. 
So it's a really cool way to make a really huge impact with a really, really small time investment. How would an organization get a hold of you to schedule or learn more about one of these events? On our website, riseagainsthunger.org, you can see where the closest location is to where you are. Um, and you can actually send in just a request saying, hey, I'm interested. This is, you know, how I heard about you. And we actually have an entire opportunity lead process where we would connect you with which uh, location would best serve where you are. So although there may not be, say, a one of our locations in Denver, Colorado, we can actually create an out-of-market event and still be able to ship everything to your site and still run that meal packing event for you, even though we don't have an actual existing location in that in that city. Awesome. I think uh, it's a great overview, and I think it's uh, – I don't have any other questions. Do you have anything else Great. you want to add? No, that's it. And if you are interested, um, I'm sure Brian will send out my um, information as well, or if you have any follow-up questions or maybe any ideas. Um, I love collaborating. So if this, you know, made you excited and you maybe want to do some skills-based volunteering or talk more about operation, supply chain, our model, or have any great ideas for us, please, please feel free to reach out. I love collaborating and meeting new people. And, uh, that's all for me. So thank you guys so much for listening, and uh, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much for your time, Courtney. Good talking yeah. to you, and keep up the great work. Thanks, Brian. Bye.